0: Thank you for listening to the voices of umass chan podcast featuring the people ideas and advances of umass chan medical school this podcast is produced by the medical school's office of communications
1: thank you for listening to the voices of umass chan i'm jennifer berryman We'd like to welcome back Dr. Miguel de Devez to the podcast. He is an Associate Professor of Neurology at UMass Chan Medical School, and here today to fill us in on UMass Chan's new Translational Institute for Molecular Therapeutics. The institute leverages the medical school's vast experience in advancing gene therapy research, ultimately with the goal to develop early stage gene therapy clinical trials. Dr. Senya Estevez is director of the new institute. Welcome and congratulations on your new title.
2: Hi, Jen. Thank you. Glad to be back.
1: So before we dive into the institute per se, can you um, just take a minute and and remind us, share a little bit about your background. How did you first come to be focused on gene therapy research?
2: I was still in in college and I saw an article in Science about treating brain tumors with uh, retroviruses which I thought at the time was a really interesting idea because in the brain, there's not a lot of dividing cells in an adult stage and uh, glioblastoma or brain tumor cells are the ones that are proliferating the fastest. And at the time, this was more longer ago than I'd like to admit, um, (laughs) retroviruses were uh, sort of the, one of the only tools available. And this retrovirus really could only infect dividing cells. So it sounded like a very clever idea uh, that using the properties of a virus to actually infect the target cells. Well, turns out that things are never that easy in science despite being published in a top journal. But that really inspired me to, to, to actually look into this field and you actually never look back. And uh, you know, the technological transformation from that time where the tools were very limited that we had for gene transfer um, has evolved enormously. And of course now, even beyond use of viruses have CRISPR, Cas9 technology of gene editing, that really at the end of the day, that's sort of the dream of uh, any person working in gene therapy to really go in, you know, you flip a little nucleotide that has catastrophic consequences, and you can actually, you know, really achieve the ultimate goal of gene therapy. It's really doing this very precise point correction. So, you know, will be some time to get there, I think, still. But nonetheless, you know, it's astounding how fast it's it's evolved, seems to be ever accelerating.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, of course, as you know, there are upwards of 7,000 diseases that have been classified by the National Institutes of Health as being rare. In the U.S., that's defined as a disease that affects fewer than 200,000 people, but some of the diseases that you're working to address are far less common than that. So, can you walk us through what are some of the barriers that researchers like you face in getting to that clinical trial stage for a rare disease?
2: Right. The, the definition that the FDA uses is indeed that 100 or 200,000 patients a year, which of course, is mind-boggling for us working in the, I guess, what's known as the ultra-rare disease space, which, you know, are diseases that can have 100 patients. uh, Very few have uh, much more than that, maybe 500 patients a year, and then, of course, then there are the ones that are in the, we know, 10 patients worldwide, right? Uh, I think part of it is also misdiagnosis, or, yeah, not misdiagnosis, but truly missed Diagnosis, not just diagnosing people with the wrong disease, but um, and you know the experience in this field has been very interesting. Uh, the numbers that are estimated initially, before clinical trials start, are really low, and we're talking about you know one in a hundred to two thousand two hundred. Thousand live births, so we are talking, You can all make your calculations, and suddenly the number of patients. Fortunately, I mean, uh, goodness, it's it's great that the number is that small because of course we don't need more people to have the misfortune of uh, being born with some of these diseases. But you can imagine and make the calculations very easily that the number per year is really really small, right? At least in US, um, and you know the frequency really is uh, worldwide more or less the same, give or take. So that creates a, a difficult. Difficulty, you know, some pharmaceutical companies sort of has have this cutoff uh, limit of saying, "Well, we're actually not going to develop therapies for, or not interested in developing therapies for diseases that have less than 500 patients a year." So that you know that number for the vast majority of these ultra rare diseases is staggering. I mean, there's not even close to those numbers, right? So. You know, the difficulty there is that we are then uh, left with the, the scenario of how do we develop uh, therapies for uh, these diseases that, you know, we're going to encounter more and more and more. And certainly as technology evolves in terms of gene therapy and becomes, you know, known to the wider public, obviously any parent that has an affected child will, will want to have a solution to the problem. Uh, The difficulty, of course, is that if there's no commercial path to it, then you're left with some few avenues, certainly the federal government is there with NIH grants and that uh, have been very supportive to many of these programs actually many of these academic programs that have been developed initiated with NIH funding. Uh, But the alternative is actually working with families and foundations that can, through very, very hard work, raise raise funds. The the, the issue is that there is a very, very big disparity between what a person, an individual or foundation that represents such a small number of patients, you know, some of them 10 patients worldwide. Um, There is a limited amount of money that someone can raise us and the, the numbers that are involved in the translation to the clinic are, are staggering, really. And, you know, when we talk to parents about this, we usually tell them look, research sounds expensive, but by comparison to what happens afterwards, after you conclude the research, after you've proven that, yes, there is a chance that this therapy can help, you know, the numbers the cost of research pales by comparison to all the next steps that that come through that, you know, you have to generate material of sufficient quality to be put in patients. You have to do formal toxicology studies that have to adhere to particular standards. And, you know, there's very good reasons to, to all of this, but the fact of the matter is that these numbers start to add up and they add up very easily to the five, $10 million, which, you know, for most people, including myself that kind of number is just mind boggling of how in the world would i ever raise that uh, to treat a reach my child got so to reach for a lot of these diseases and so that's anyway yeah so it, it it's it's challenging for sure uh, but that's part of the reason that we also started the institutes to address some of these uh, barriers
1: well that's what i want to talk about because this new institute does give hope to so many families uh, who are facing a rare or ultra rare, as you say, disease diagnosis, and and I want to talk about why how why the institute is tackling this head on because it, you know part of part of the benefit is what you learn in developing a treatment for one disease will open doorways and ideas and pathways to treat other diseases. Correct.
2: Yeah. No. Absolutely. No. No yeah. question about it. And you know the the institute was the idea of the institute was born from our experience with several clinical trials and really perceive these barriers that are in place. And they're not barriers that are purposefully put in place. They're just financial barriers of certain standards that have evolved over time. There's very good reasons for them. But at the same time, we're confronted with this situation. We either turn away people and tell them, well, I'm so sorry that you were born with this disease or your child was born with this disease, and we continue you know, uh, human throughout human history, obviously that's what has happened, or we had to change the equation somehow. And, you know, it's through exploring alternative approaches to manufacturing high quality material to um, conduct the clinical trials. Fortunately enough, so far we have some buy-in from the FDA to to do this in some cases. And to a great extent, it's gaining control of the production method or the production of these materials leveraging the infrastructure that actually is already in place at UMass, um, as well as really starting to think about uh, other supporting activities that need to take place and whether bringing them in-house allows us to actually control costs. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's always that balance between building things that are not used and using contractors uh, to do this. And that's sort of the model that we all have followed But the costs are so high that once one starts to make calculations, even paying people really good salaries, it actually is worthwhile doing it Mm in-house. Now, of course, we all know that we're in this very strange space of hiring that as we all know and well experiencing every business that's very difficult to hire. So this might not be the moment to launch some of these activities <laughs> that we want to. Um, but certainly uh, this is part of our plan is really to gain control of the costs while maintaining the quality the same uh, as much as possible based on what we, um, and then continue to innovate. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the aspect that is actually critical is that if we can make innovations in production methods, et cetera, Our goal is to do that so that we can bring costs down um, Mm -hmm. to patients. If it impacts, you know, while companies make things afterwards and it's cheaper, that's wonderful. But that's not our drive. Our drive really is to try to use our knowledge and existing infrastructure to really be able to bring costs down to a point that, look, it's not going to be cheap either. Mm -hmm. But our goal is to bring this down dramatically so that it's no longer as daunting as, as it is presently. So that's that's what right. our goal is and the mission is really to try and open the possibility to as many patients as possible and as many diseases as possible.
1: We recently interviewed Terry Flott, UMass Chan's provost and executive deputy chancellor and himself a renowned gene therapy researcher about the approach of this new institute. We're actually
0: beginning to have opportunities to do design therapies for individual children Uh, or at least for children with entire um, groups of genetic mutations that might be able to be treatable by gene therapy. The technology has begun to get mature enough to where we actually might be able to do something for individual children, individual families uh, that come to us, so it's it's a very promising time We're definitely on the forefront. There are only maybe less than a handful of places in the United States right now uh, that can do this sort of technological tailoring, if you will, uh, of a specific uh, gene therapy toward a specific disorder and Many people are approaching us because our basic scientists and our translational scientists like Dr. Estevez uh, know their disease type um, in depth. Having all this talent in one place, you know, we're gonna continue to solve each of these disease problems one by one.
1: And to put a finer point on that, that means you know using the research expertise in-house to to investigate and do the research, and then perhaps manufacturing in in-house, as you say, and then doing the testing and um, uh, other requirements to get to to clinical trial.
2: Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. It's a question of establishing a pipeline, right? I and mean, pipelines, you stuff that you talk about in industry, I suppose, but that's true. It's actually establishing a pipeline. There's, there is so much great research going on at at UMass that really gets to that point of, well, I've done the proof of concept, but now I have this enormous cost in front of me. What do I do now? And these things can actually die on the bench or waiting to license it if you're lucky. And, you know, again, coming back to licensing for disease that have lots of patients, that's relatively easy when you get into the ultra rare disease space, that's where the challenge is, right? So, uh, and what we've learned is that There are certain activities that need support from people actually have the know-how to do it, such as, for instance, navigating all the paperwork and regulatory that is necessary. Something that we did on our own, and good Lord, was scary because, of course, first time you do it, you have absolutely no idea what you're doing. And we did it because we care immensely about the disease that we work on, but really is not the efficient way to do it, right? You want to have the people that are the professionals that know how to do this so that internally, at least initially internally, that we have the ability to help investigators to say, all right, we have the proof of concept. How do we move it efficiently towards the clinic? And for us to perfect therapies, we're going to have to go and try them in humans so that we know what works and what doesn't. If it doesn't, we can come back and optimize it, right? that's what we're learning in the field as well, that there are toxicities that we've seen in some of the clinical, ongoing clinical trials with AAV that have never, ever been reproduced in animal species. So we really have to do the clinical trials to learn what works, what doesn't, so that we can have this cycle of innovation that really will lead us to to actually the cures that we all want. So it's really important that we have a method or a roadmap to get to the clinical trials, where it's truly where we're going to learn reality.
1: Yes, so I think that if we can um, talk about your work on a couple of specific diseases, it will elucidate what it is you're trying to do. And so in a minute, we'll talk about your recent tay publication. But uh, I want to start with the Raiden Science Foundation. They're supporting UMass Chan researchers as you study mm-hmm ultra-rare disease called UBA 5. Um, the Raiden Science Foundation was started by an Oregon couple, Tommy and Linda Pham, after their son Raiden was diagnosed with UBA 5, exceptionally rare disease. So when a family comes to you like this, what criteria are you looking at to consider whether or not you might be able to offer some promise?
2: So the main criteria is do we think the technology we have in hand can help, right? And you know diseases follow fall into some major categories, for which you know UMass again we have a wealth of technologies at hand that really are appropriate to address each one of them. You can have diseases where there's a missing function, where you know using AAV vectors to put that function back in is appropriate. We have diseases where you have a dominant disease, meaning that you have a mutant protein or gene that exerts An effect that is toxic. So we have oligonucleotides, you know, SIRNAs, ASOs that are outstanding at silencing genes. And there's numerous programs uh, being run at the RTI. And there is other, you know, flavors of disease for which you can use AVs or ASOs. So we really have this, you know. And I'm not even gonna talk about, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, in which we have fabulous programs uh, going on as well. And by us, this is the UMass us, not the Miguel us, for sure. That's-, that's Right, you, UMass Chen. make smart. it absolutely clear, UMass Chen has fabulous programs going on in pretty much this entire um, tools of, of molecular uh, therapeutics. Um, so to come back, so essentially what we look at is, is the disease addressable by one of the technologies that we have at hand? Is, do we know what the causing gene is? Uh, Because there are diseases, for instance, Alzheimer's being one example in which, yeah, we know a couple of genes that are causative, that are familial, but then there's those 90% of people that we have absolutely no clue, and for which it's really hard to develop therapies where you don't understand the molecular mechanism, right? So for those diseases that people can approach and actually been approached by by one family talking about my, uh, multiple sclerosis, and I would love to help people with multiple sclerosis, but without knowing the cause, without know, having a target, you know, we, we can't develop a therapy. So UVA five in that regard is a very clear genetic disease caused by mutations that eliminate gene function. So developing an AV gene therapy makes total sense. So you know, we're not. I wish we had all the money in the world that we could tell anyone that comes in, yes, we'll take this program, we'll develop the therapies. Reality is that research costs a lot of money. Uh, we don't have the resources to, to actually do that. Unfortunately, of saying, well, don't worry about it. We have enough money, we'll take care of it. Uh, so we have to work with families to really say, all right, this is how much it's gonna cost. By golly, our our uh, budgets are always as minimal as possible. And we're very honest with people and tell them, look, this is what it's going to cost moving forward. And we're now starting to really think about, you know, these alternative methods of production in-house, et cetera, et cetera, to try to control costs. And I think we're going to be able to do it much cheaper. And that really gives people the hope that it can actually be done. To us, really, is the, is the human need. That, that drives our projects and and to 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 drive forward and and to to do the necessary science to try and help people. You know, in addition to that, UVA five. Well, thank you for bringing it up, Jen. Jen and certainly we didn't uh, prepare this one uh, ahead of time, but it's actually something that I, I believe it's really important for for the institute and, and UMass as well, which is helping young investigators move up the scale to become independent investigators so the UBA5 is one of those examples there's actually another one that we're doing and in fact Dr. Guan Pengao is doing that the young associate assistant professors are working with him that are leading some of the uh, of these diseases they have come in uh, and you know they are actually the ones leading it and it's important that we create this environment that is supportive to young investigators that can actually learn how to do this because well you know there's only so much time in a day and really attention that each investigator can uh, follow programs effectively. And so it's important that not only we accomplish these goals of helping people, but that we also form the people that will take on more diseases and that there'll be the future of gene therapy, really. And it doesn't have to be an AAV, it can be in any of the other diseases. So I think, so what we propose to the family is that what a young um, instructor in the radiology department that works in the gene therapy center would lead this project but that we would be kind of you know in the back sort of providing the resources and helping the person shape the program moving it forward because you know there's a lot that one needs to learn to do it and but the goal is really to, to achieve those two um aims at the same time of helping the patients and at the same uh, time have a um you know academic development program to to create the next or to help form the next generation of scientists and increase the number of people that UMass can actually do this uh, translational work
1: i think that's a great point the the training that next generation of gene therapy experts
2: but also you know it's a
1: stark reminder when you say there are so many of these diseases for which we still don't know what genes uh, are are implicated in causing these diseases so i think as time goes on hopefully we'll get the keys to unlock more doors. So as we sort of close out here, I just wanna talk about, uh, leave a few minutes to talk about the progress that you and your colleagues have announced um, recently through a paper that was published in Nature Medicine. This is uh, the first human gene therapy trial for infantile Tay-Sachs disease. And you found that an adeno-associated virus, an AAV, can be safely administered to infants So let's talk about these results, why they're so promising, and what comes next.
2: They're promising because we've shown that, in fact, we can do it safely. Um, This has never been done in in children or in babies, actually, infants this young, uh, injecting directly uh, into the brain. We're injecting specific structures that we know from animal experiments across species that we're able to distribute the therapeutic protein widely. Although we treated the the patients with very low dose uh, because it was the first in human and obviously there is an enormous risk going from animals into human. So we were uh, very conservative. But even then we can have some inklings that there may have been a a benefit uh, to, to, to the patients. According to the families, or at least one family, that the, the, the child was actually treated pretty late. They believe there has been a considerable benefit of the child having, you know, better uh, trunk tone or, you know, muscle control. Um, the eyes of, of these patients are, it's interesting, actually, that's one of the features that is completely reproducible in these patients over and over again, which is The eyes actually roving around. And one of the first things we saw within a month is that it stopped. It stopped and the eyes now uh, were no longer sort of randomly moving around, but seemed to be tracking. You know, being safe, uh, stable, the patient seemed to be stable. It's not, you know, uh, knock it out of the park. It's not a home run for sure, but it's certainly the first step that has proven that, yes, this this um, approach is safe, and what that has led to is actually now a dose escalation that is taking place in a form of Phase 1, 2 clinical trial that is being actually conducted here at UMass Chen Medical School, uh, led by Actually, our dean, Dr. Terry Flott, who's the person that's been doing gene therapy for a long, long time. He's a
1: pioneer He's great in
2: gene therapy. He's a pioneer in gene therapy without a question, which is you know sort of a, well, for us, it's kind of a gift, really, because we've been involved in the field for a long time, and having a person like that on our side and doing it is, is really fantastic. So that's what's ongoing right now is actually increasing the dose slowly. So. You know, you go up the next patient and next patient, you'll hit the dose that based on the animal experiments, you think that will be uh, transformative.
1: But as you say, safety is always the first step when we get to the clinical trial uh, phase. And uh, and certainly you and your colleagues have published this paper describing an important and encouraging step forward. So uh, Dr. Miguel Senia Estevez, thank you for your time best of luck to you and your colleagues as you continue this important work thank you jen and thanks and congratulations on the institute if you would like to learn more about the translational institute for molecular therapeutics go to umassmed.edu translational institute dash four molecular dash therapeutics and thank you for joining us i'm jennifer berryman and if you like our podcast give us a review or if you have an episode idea, email us at Communications at umassmed.edu.
0: Follow UMass Chan Medical School on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Our handle is UMass Chan. On YouTube, find us at UMass Chan Medical School.